This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log Supplemental Number 30 Gene Roddenberry versus Star Trek Welcome into an extra special supplemental edition of Mission Log Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. It's an extra special special. It's just for you. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, a very special episode, kind of like uh, when Arnold and Willis <laughs> learn not to do drugs. Or not to shoplift. Don't cheat in school. Pretty much every episode with Arnold and Willis was a very special episode. I, I think so. Yeah. Although I'm, yeah. A, I'm a bigger fan of like... Today, on a very special episode of Baywatch. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No so we, uh, we're, we're a couple of weeks back from Star Trek Las Vegas, the 2016 50th anniversary celebration. And we did, we did so many panels. So Just many panels. so many. Too many to count. But I'll count them. <laughs> it's five. Yeah. Because uh, I can do that on one hand. And... Uh, I'll say this, Ken. A couple of those panels maybe were not perfect for audio. So we did the match game, which was a lot of fun. But you kind of need the visual. You need to see the people on the panel, um, our special celebrity guests. But we had a few that we thought right away would be perfect for audio. So last week, of course, we released our top 10, which is not a top 10 TOS countdown. And um, I'm very pleased to say that in between last week and this week's show, our friends at Trek Geeks and Priority One, they have done ex- what we hoped would happen, which is they released the audio and video for the podcast panel, which is so cool because we got uh, we have representation of eight different Star Trek podcasts on that stage. And uh, you can find it by going to missionlogpodcast.com. You can watch the video or you can listen to the audio or you can go to trekgeeks.com. You can go to priorityonepodcast.com and uh, watch or listen there. It's just super cool. Uh, We wanted to kind of form that community with other Star Trek podcasters. And I think it was a success. If you listen to it, you get a little behind-the-scenes look at Star Trek podcasting. But today is a very different panel. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This panel, uh, you and Rod and I kicked around for a little while trying to find exactly the right angle. Mm -hmm. Um, And that angle became Gene Roddenberry versus Star Trek. Yes, which may sound weird, but I think we actually describe at the beginning why we chose that, Mm -hmm. right? And and what exactly we mean. I mean, it was sort of, of, I want to say that you and I actually chose it as sort of an incendiary title, but it turns mm-hmm. out there's a tremendous amount to uh, to discuss there. I actually got in an argument about it last night as we record this with somebody Man. else. I know. It's wow. crazy, right? Not, and I hate to say argument, but seriously, it did get a little heated. Wait, was that an online argument? or No, no, no. That was me sitting across argument? the table from a friend of mine after seeing Star Trek Beyond. Wow. And you just were fingers in each other's faces like, you don't even know. There was a word said that that we would have to bleep out (laughs) if it happened here. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, which is fair enough. I know. But, you know, you come off like, you know, a week and a half of Star Trek stuff into like nothing. And then you go back into beyond. 
Yeah. And yeah, uh, suddenly the, the the fire is up, and, uh, and maybe <laughs> maybe I maybe I should have had a had a bit of a lie down rather than the conversation. It's, I don't know. It's a bit of an unfair topic, you know. I, I mean, in some ways, it really is because all, all we have uh, are just the shows with Gene Roddenberry's name on them and Mm -hmm. and we're trying to infer a lot of how much was in his influence and how much wasn't and i also feel like today's show you know it's a little less than an hour of audio because Mm -hmm. the the panels they try to keep short um but we could just have gone on for hours and hours you could write a book on this you could write several books on this i would be surprised if somebody hasn't yeah 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 and if they hadn't you get on that john Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that on top of all my other. And I'll write a, uh, a profanity laden um, Ford. Mm-hmm. Perfect. For, for, right. for no apparent reason. Hey, um, before we, because we, we really shouldn't keep talking about what we're going to talk about. We should just, you know, mm-hmm. go ahead and let people hear what we talked about. But before we talk about that, we do want to talk about uh, our sponsor, the uh, Star Trek Starships Collection. Yes, from our good friends at Eagle Moss. We've talked about them before, and yeah. we'll just keep on talking about them because you, they're so cool. You know what I've never said before, though? I mean, I've said What's the word, that? but I've never said it on this. Excelsior. Oh, you just said Excelsior. I did. I love the USS Excelsior. It's funny because it appears um, in Star Trek. I believe it's in Star Trek Three when it first shows up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's sort of a it's sort of a bucket of fail. But of course, it was right. sabotaged by Scotty. So that the Enterprise can get away. Sabotaged. Yeah. By Scotty, so the Enterprise can get away. But I've always loved the design of that. And good thing, too, because it only shows up like 38 more times in Next Gen. (laughs) That that design, right? But, uh, yeah, so that's one that I've not said before. Uh, What was the other one I was so excited about? I'm having trouble finding it right now. There was, well, Defiant. Botany Bay. Botany Bay. Botany Bay is a while. Botany Bay is a while down the road, though. I mean, there there are actually some, because I want to say the Excelsior is like issue eight. So, I mean, the, yeah. the Excelsior yeah, pretty is pretty early. quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. My point is, I think we've, we've discussed, like, I've discussed the Klingon Bird of Prey over and over again. We've discussed the uh, refit for the Enterprise. I mean, th- these things go deep. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's what I like, because I, I'm a little bit torn, actually, because there are places where you can look at the whole collection in order, what has come, what will be coming out, what's in development. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm the guy who doesn't like to spoil his Christmas presents. You know, I don't want to know ahead of time, um, but I, I kind of want to peek ahead at this list because, like you said, it's all about the deep cuts, and the deep cuts are amazing. Sure, you get your Enterprise, you get your Enterprise D, you get your Enterprise E, but then you look in there and you're like, oh, wow, the Phoenix, Zephram Cochran's ship, you know, and yeah. You've gone through maybe some 23rd, 24th century ships, and you know, then the just that one lands with the Botany Bay lands, and you're like, wow, they've really gone back and, and done research on a ship that appeared once, and then make a super cool model of it. So there's no end of surprise here, uh, but if you do want to peek ahead, you can peek ahead. So <laughs> It'll probably entice you to stay with it. The detail is incredible. The The weight of these things is incredible. You can, you know, run around and play with them, as we said before. I mean, don't throw them, you know, because... <laughs> no, they're, don't do that. They're not, don't do. they're not made of adamantium, for crying no. out loud. But, I mean, you know, no. they're, they're Neither is adamant, for that matter. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. Nor is he made of ants. It's really kind of disappointing when you get down to it. Yeah. Um, yeah they come with a stand, so, I mean, you can just set them up and look at them if you want to, or you can, you know, take them off the stand and, and, and fly them around. They've got the really cool detailing, like, okay, so things that would light up 
They're actually made of translucent materials so that if they're anywhere near a light, you're going to catch that light. Like in the uh, Enterprise that's sitting in front of me, uh, there's mm-hmm. light coming through the nacelles, which is neat because, you know, they should be lit up. And thanks to a little trompe they are. Um, yeah. It, it's hard to say enough about how cool these things are. The best thing to say is probably um, get started with an inexpensive one. Um, yeah, you can get started on your collection today with the USS Enterprise 1701D for only four ninety five. Yeah. Four bucks, 95 cents. That includes shipping. So you're not even on the hook for shipping. And here's the thing. Even if you decide to cancel your subscription after that, who would? That would be crazy. Um, <laughs> but you get to keep the Enterprise D. And then you get not a new ship every month. You get two ships every month that is super cool and you will not want to stop because these are amazing looking ships and you can start that collection by visiting st-starships.com slash mission log let them know that you found out about them by visiting us from mission log so st-starships.com slash mission log and we really do appreciate their uh, their sponsoring their continued sponsorship of, of mission log so, yeah. what is this, mm-hmm. like the fourth time now? Well, the fourth or ninth time that we took a stage at the Rio. Either way. Yeah. I, it just, all runs together at a certain point. I don't even remember which one this one was, but um, really, I, I want to hit one more thing really quickly, because we didn't do our standard, you know, here's a recap of everything that happened in Vegas this time. Right, right. How is it that we got to do five panels is a question that people might ask. <laughs> uh, we only did uh, the one sort of big creation panel. That's the one you're about to hear now. But uh, there right. was there was a new thing introduced this year uh, in Quark's Bar, uh, mm-hmm. and it was the Roddenberry Interactive uh, uh, Saloon and Drink Aporium or whatever it was. <laughs> it, it was it was a <laughs> yeah, stage that was exactly programmed like that. by Roddenberry Entertainment, I want to say, and um, and and mad props to the people behind it. Um, I don't know. Should we name them? Should we Should we say? Um, Absolutely, we should. Okay, yeah. so Claire Kramer and and Trevor yeah. Roth. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and, and am, I, am I missing anybody? Uh, well, there were a lot of techs and and other helpers. Uh, there was Charlie. There was Carly. Uh, Claire's uh, husband. I mean, just there was kind of a team of people behind this, and yeah. it was something so new and exciting for Star Trek Las Vegas. And it it did have this sort of loungy feel to it. You go yeah. in, there are tables, you can get a drink, and the programming is just happening all day long. And the programming um, was like, it was crazy. It was everything from, mm-hmm. that's actually where we did our 10 Essential TOS, mm-hmm. all the way to, well, that's where we did Match Game, to the guys from Priority One, or the people from Priority One, excuse me, did Stand By, Don't Hail Me, which is their mm-hmm. you know riff on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I know there was a lot of yep. Enterprise Extra did something there, I think. Yeah, right. Talking about right. having been an extra on Enterprise. I'm going to guess because I didn't actually <laughs> see his panel, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's what he did. Uh, it was like right. it was like five days of, of, of just chock full programming that was different than, than a lot of the stuff that we've seen there before. So yeah. I, I don't know if that happens again, but it's one of those things where I'm telling as many people about it as I can because I want it to happen again. Um, I heard a lot of really yeah. good things from a lot of people, too, who didn't even see, like, it wasn't like, oh, your panels were great. It was like, yeah, no, the Roddenberry stage was great. They had the Roddenberries mm-hmm. play. I don't know if you know who the Roddenberries are, but they're like a, they're a Star Trek-themed rock band. Right. They were nuts. Yeah. <laughs> a, yeah, they were. In a they good were. way, mostly. 
<laughs> they were just <laughs> they were actually fantastic and they played the Roddenberry stage as well. So anyway, that gives you just a tiny bit more color about what happened in Vegas. Uh sadly that part had to stay there because you know, <laughs> it's a stage and you can't yep. take it everywhere. So today's panel, though, today's panel is the one that was on the creation stage in the D. Kelly Theater. It's a secondary theater, which is a nice sized theater, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 definitely no shortage of people you can fit in there. But that was our sort of uh, main creation sponsored panel that we did. All the other panels we did on the Roddenberry stage, that's why we did so many. And they had a very different feel. Uh, so this one is uh, me and you. And Rod Roddenberry and some fantastic listeners and supporters who were in the audience. And then they chimed in at the end with questions, just like we asked them to, uh, to really give some color to this conversation. Um, I, I had a great time doing this. I think we might have gotten off track a little bit. You can listen and, and see if we did or not. But, um, you know, you get a bunch of Trekkies in a room to talk Star Trek and, hey, anything can happen. Hey, next week, by the way, for people, sorry, uh, not sorry, sorry, not sorry. I hate that term. Um, <laughs> you just did it. If you're expecting the game today, good news. You're a week ahead. We're getting back into our regular shows uh, next week with the game. In the meantime, we do hope you enjoy our trip to Vegas. Live from the DeForest Kelly Theater at Star Trek Las Vegas in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada. This is a special edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And Each week. Oh, because it's not usually like he's, that. Yeah, and he's... I'm, I'm Rod Roddenberry, in case you didn't know. And each week on Mission Log, we pick apart an episode of Star Trek, hunting it down for morals, meanings, messages, and trying to see what stands the test of time. And we are not doing that today. What we're doing today is a few months ago, I was listening to a uh, podcast, great podcast, I highly recommend it, called The Dana Gould Hour. Uh, called The Dana Gould Hour, it's usually about two and a half hours long. And their episode about Star Wars, they were talking about how great it was that Star Wars had been taken away from George Lucas. He was so happy that Disney had Star Wars now because George Lucas nearly killed Star Wars, just like Gene Roddenberry nearly killed Star Trek. What? And he kept going, and, but ever since then, I, it, it's, it's like, I mean, they hit a little pebble in the road, and I felt like they hit a giant speed bump. Um, there are plenty of people who say that Star Trek really gets good after Gene Roddenberry. There are other people who say it lost something after Gene Roddenberry. I was just amazed that people in the business, and of course when I say the business, I mean the industry. Um, well, nothing. No? <laughs> that, people, uh, that, that, that people just accept the fact that, yeah, Gene Roddenberry nearly wrecked this thing that we're all here celebrating, and so we're here today talking about that idea. And as luck would have it, so we started Mission Log four years ago this week at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. So this is always kind of an anniversary and celebration for us. We started it with the cage, and it just so happened that the episode that came out today, yesterday, I don't know my days. Disaster. Uh, yeah, disaster. Ultimate disaster. So that was the last, I'm sorry, that was the, yeah, that was the last episode that aired before Gene Roddenberry passed away. So we thought this was a, a, a fortuitous bit of timing here that we could really look at the first 25 years of Star Trek, specifically the time that Gene Roddenberry had influence personally over what came out, what bore his name. So, I, I, And I've struggled with this for a long time. Um, you know, just my own personal way, trying to figure out what is Star Trek with Gene Roddenberry and what is Star Trek without. And uh, it's, it's a conversation that we've had many times, so... 
Um, please know that I'm not here to defend Gene Roddenberry. I'm not here to, to throw him in a ditch either. I, I love the discussion. So hopefully you'll have it with us. Yeah, and hopefully you'll have questions too. Um, I, I'll kind of kick things off by saying that, you know, when Ken and I were talking about this idea, uh, the first thing that came to mind is, okay, we're at the 25-year mark. I kind of have to look at this as the timeline of Gene's influence. I want to wrap my head around it chronologically. So to me, what that means is, here's a guy who is writing a pilot to be shot in 1965. Yeah, they, yeah, 64, 64. Um, and then, you know, the original series came out, ended in 1969. Fast forward a couple of years later and you have the animated series. And to me, this period in the Which is phenomenal. But animated, Sorry, animated series just... is terrific. Yeah, fantastic stories in the animated series. Well, yes, right. Um, and then in the 70s, you had this weird nebulous time that was after the animated series, before the first movie, and Gene was doing a couple of things. He was thinking about, well, what other shows could I produce? What other life might Star Trek have? Would it be a TV series? Would it be a movie? And that kind of went back and forth a few times. But he was also doing the college lecture circuit. And he was also coming to conventions. And he was selling stuff through Lincoln Enterprises. And to me, that, that period is so fascinating because I picture it as the time that the Star Trek philosophy really developed. And, and, and I don't know if you guys, if you go on YouTube and you do Gene Roddenberry's speech, there are some great speeches. They're in multiple parts, but I just heard one for the first time a couple months ago oh, wow. that blew my mind. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So highly recommend that. So we come then to the first movie, and we know that the first movie did not do so well critically, and uh, Gene's influence over the remaining movies was greatly diminished. But then you hit 1987, and you had the premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was very much Gene's baby again. And he got to see at least, you know, the first four seasons and into the fifth season before he passed away. So that's where we are on the timeline. And I look at it as a, a series of influences that had highs and lows. That's where we are now. I got to say, there's one thing already that you've said when you when you said you think that philosophy grew up sort of between the series and the motion picture. Yeah, I think the philosophy was always there. I mean, maybe there wasn't the whole Great Bird of the Galaxy idea, but the philosophy was always there because we're not all at a Lost in Space convention. We're not all at <laughs> a Bonanza be. convention. We're not yeah. all at you know any number of TV series that might have been huge that might have drawn people. I mean, it is this. It is this vision of a future that is, you know, devoid of things like disease and money and want and, you know, all of that stuff. And that was not the kind of thing that was being presented on television at the time. Well, I think the structure was there, you know, and writing and developing TV is a very isolating thing. You can just picture it as Gene Roddenberry sitting in front of a typewriter saying, here are my ideas for a show. And then there's a writer like David Gerald or Harlan Ellison or whoever else doing the same thing. DC and then that, Fontana. DC Fontana. And then those scripts get filtered around and it goes to a producer and another producer and then whittled down to what we actually see on the screen. It's a very different thing from a guy on a stage talking to people, getting feedback, and then hearing from those people one-on-one. -on -one. I think that Star Trek, the original series at least, was very good about being a piece of commentary and a piece of reflection of what was happening at the time. So civil rights was 
a huge topic in late 60s America. So that had to be reflected in Star Trek, and fortunately they got to do that in a way that was different from other shows. Certainly it was not just another space adventure like Lost in Space. Can, can I, and so along those mm. lines, you know, I, I, two things. One is uh, an incredible thing to read, which I know you guys have read, is the Bible, you know, sure. written in yeah, 1964. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, that's very telling as to where my oh, father's no, mind was. That Bible. Not that, sorry. Okay, okay, yeah, we weren't sure. Yes, but, yeah. sorry, we, we call Writer's that Guide, like, I'm sorry, Writer's like Guide. 1600 or yes. something, wasn't you it? You should all read the Bible. It's, <laughs> um, it's a great piece of work. Yeah, and this um, panel took a weird turn. <laughs> right? So if you haven't read that, not the Bible, the Writer's Guide, phenomenal. It really tells you where his head was at. Uh, but the first episode, you know, I, I watch The Cage often, mm -hmm. and that varied crew, it's not as varied. And it's really yeah. interesting, along the lines of what we're discussing here, where did Star Trek come from? What, what did it evolve from? What was the original vision? And where is it, you know, after Gene's passing, after my father's passing? I mean, every writer needs an editor. Every director needs an editor. Different kind of editor, you know. Um, so uh, I mentioned a, a moment ago the idea of the writer being very alone, banging out something on a typewriter. But then it goes to all these other people and it kind of gets morphed into something else. So it took that first round with the cage for then other people to see it and sort of retool it and say, you know what, we really need is this guy here and this woman here. And then that becomes the crew that we saw. I think he learned a lot from it, too. I'm Certainly. just bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and as we all know, because we're big fans of the cage, very thoughtful, very creative episode. Um, didn't have necessarily a strong statement about a social problem, but it had statements to make about psychology and and personal interactions. Except, I would argue that the actual setting is the is the statement of what did you what was the exact wording you just used? I apologize. Oh, uh, a social statement. Yeah, psychology. No, we start people. off with people. I think I mentioned this on the uh, Ten Essential the other day. Yeah. We start off with the people that are that are so in space, that are so far along, they're bored, and that's a really. You okay back there, Trevor? You all right? <laughs> it's an amazing thing to think that you know, at a time that we're trying to get to the moon, at the time that we're trying to beat the Russians to the moon, that we're trying to get a, a, a further foothold in space than we would have had at that time that he is presenting a future where it's like, yeah, you're going to have a woman in second in command. Of course you are. It's not even a thing. Although it is sort of made a thing at the end where it's like, oh, well, it's different with you. Sure. You know, but, sure. but I mean, you, 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 so you've got women not in command but near a command position at that point, and no big deal is made about it. It's just the way it is. And, yeah, of course we're flying in space. We're flying in space so much, we're thinking about quitting flying in space now because <laughs> this is just so regular, and I want to go do something else now. And so... Even though you're not standing up and saying, look how great the future is going to be. Instead, you're going, hey, look, we're in the future, and things went so well, and, and yet there are still a couple of things that we want to talk about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is where we end up on Mission Log very often, is that we start out with the premise that things are great, generally, and we have this time to go out and explore, and maybe that has become so boring we're thinking about not even exploring anymore. We're just thinking about becoming a slave trader or yeah. <laughs> whatever it is that... Yeah. Pike wants to do. Um, but this is sort of the crux of the argument, is to say, well, when we have fixed so many problems, when we have resolved issues like war and famine on Earth, what do we do next? And if we've resolved these things and we don't have conflict, 
Well, what does that do to storytelling, but what does that do to us? A lot of the writers didn't like that. Uh, Next Generation, uh, writing without conflict. Michael Piller has a great statement about how it, it really taught them to approach stories in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Because I'm curious. Well, uh, w when we interviewed him for Trek Nation, um, you know, he, he, he said an amazing thing, which was, you know, you, you put the ship together and, and you put these characters together who don't have conflict amongst themselves. And for, for traditional story writing, it's about conflict, whatever it is. And, and Michael Piller says, you know, you, you have to approach stories in a new way because these characters are not arguing or, or having conflict with each other. Um, of course, they have to find conflict in other things. And, and that's actually a great thing between uh, before my father and after my father. Yeah. How the stories changed, I think. There was more conflict, but that's good storytelling to some degree. But, what's a, but then the question becomes, what kind of story is it that you're telling? I mean, you go to something like, I'll just name an original series episode again. The Corbomite Maneuver. Oh, hey, I've heard of that one. Have you? Oh, wait, yes. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of an internal conflict there where you have the one guy who, I can't remember his name. Bailey? Just wanted to, like, turn and run, right? And yeah. he was, he, he, and so there's a tiny bit there, but that's like a, that's a learning moment for him. Our conflicts were always outside. I mean, there, there, it seems to me there are two stories being told in every episode of Star Trek in a way, at least the, sort of the Gene Roddenberry version of Star Trek. The first one is, yes, we're going to be awesome. We're going to come across these aliens who are having these problems, but of course they represent us too. Mm -hmm. But what we're not going to do is fight amongst ourselves about it. And I know we get to things like we get to things like family, or we're getting emails constantly now from people who are saying, "Oh, we're finally getting the good Star Trek." <laughs> really, twenty-five years. We're finally <laughs> getting the good Star. We're finally getting to the good stories. And I'm 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 finding myself personally on the horns of a dilemma on it because I know there's some amazing conflict stuff coming up. The Federation and and Starfleet are going to let Picard down in so many ways over the next few years, and I think based on what I've heard, that would drive Gene Roddenberry crazy. Because we're supposed to make it, and then we sort of help everyone else do that, and thus we help ourselves. I, can I, can, sorry, just hearing you say, I, I think, and, and this is a, a thought in progress, we're getting to, to better sci-fi, not better story, not better Gene Roddenberry, better sci-fi, because I, I remember enjoying the, the later episodes after season five, enjoying them more in a, in a, in a fun way. Like, it's, it's, it's a fun story and it's cool sci-fi. It's much more rollicking. I mean, it's rollicking. Yeah. It's much more, I mean, they're, they're, I don't want to say they're better stories. It depends on what you want the story to do. If you want to be so, not solely entertained, but if you want to be largely entertained or maybe more entertained because it's more exciting, then you're getting into some better storytelling. But why are we going back 25 years to say Corbomite Maneuver? What else, like, has anything been presented at this point, or is there anything that's going to come from 5, 6, 7? I know that gets us into years 26, 27, and 28, but, yeah. I mean, is there anything that's going to be coming up that we're going to say, ah, that's the gold standard? This says everything that Star Trek should say. Right. I mean, when we had that was when we said, look, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are fine. All the people that serve with them are fine. Starfleet's great, but we're telling these amazing stories that involve one guy who's half white and half black, and another guy who's half black and half white. And there's no internal strife there. We're learning from the thing outside. And when we get to the one where, you know, Picard is having his crisis of, you know, whatever because of his family or because of the Federation or something like that. Yeah, you're getting to some really interesting storytelling, but we've now given up on the idea that we're going to be fine. If you want to really tell a good story, let's not start from the premise that everything's going to be okay. We're always going to have to fight to be okay, and it feels like his initial thought was... No, we're going to be okay, and we have to go ahead and spread that message. 
There's still other ways to spread other messages, and we can even do it in the same story. But we can no longer start from the premise that everything's going to be fine. Well, see, I, I think that's what's so kind of weird about the change in Star Trek from the original series to Next Gen. So, I'm, you know, I grew up on the original series. That's still kind of my Star Trek, although, you know, Next Gen is such a close second. But they're so different in so many ways. I look at the original series, and it's full of heightened drama. And it's, whether it's personal drama, like, like how you love to talk about Kirk seeing the ugly side of himself and having to hug that out. Or we see Spock having his emotional breakdown in the naked time. I think that's such a powerful, dramatic, and wonderful scene. Um, seeing Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, that triumvirate kind of, triumvirate, sorry, kind of uh, struggle with each other. The emotions are played in a heightened way because it's a big, splashy action-adventure show of the 1960s. But then you get to the next generation, and I kind of half-jokingly but half-seriously say it's a hotel in space, and it's bland, and they don't know how to party. They still don't know what a wild party is. They have no idea. Um, so he's, maybe conflict isn't the right word, Maybe it's this sense of uh, the, the sense of action adventure that's definitely toned down a bit in the next generation. Um, but conversely, you've got the movies, which you know, movies one through six, which were coming out as Gene was still alive, which are playing up the action adventure after the motion picture was called the motion. And the motion picture is a great example with all yeah. the others. Yeah, it's, it's a great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, please, uh, sorry, Ken, keep your thought. Agree, disagree with us. When we ask questions, we'd love for you guys to come up and share your thoughts on yeah, this. Yeah, come so. on up. Yeah, got a mic there and a mic over there. I lost where I was going. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, you're right. Kirk does have to hug it out with himself. Picard has to hug it out with... Well, actually, Picard has to kill himself in yeah, Times well, Square. Well, he does, yeah. But um, I, don't think, I don't think... To say that we're going to be okay, I don't think is to say that everything is always going to be okay for everybody, but the starting point is we're going to be okay. I mean, it's the whole thing of, you know, uh, one twig will break easily, but a bundle of twigs won't. Somebody mm -hmm. may be having some problem, but overall, we're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And when you start introducing stories where Picard actually has to start watching his back because somebody further up the chain might not agree with something that he's done. Or what was the one with Admiral Satie? Court-martial? Oh, the drumhead. Drum Thank yes, you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, once you get once you get things like that, I mean, it, it actually honestly starts to get a bit sad for me at that point because then it's no longer us against everyone. It's not us anymore. It's me against the world. Well, it, the the original series is littered with people who outrank Kirk, who are horrible at their jobs. But systematically or systemically, <laughs> it's not a it's not a it's not rotting from the top down. Necessarily. I mean, I, you know, you introduce yourself to a Commodore or two from the original series. And Individually, they're you know, jerks. Yeah, yeah, I agree yeah, with yeah, you. Right. Yeah. Uh, it looks like we have a question. Uh, for the question, quick comment you were saying about uh, everybody above the rank of Captain Kirk is a horrible, horrible person. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's generally corporate America. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> my wife works in corporate, she can tell you that. But <laughs> something that drives me nuts whenever I hear your uh, podcast during the next generation is your presumption that they don't know what a wild party is. <laughs> he said they, it, not me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, you're in the clear. You're good. Because when they beam aboard the Tsiolkovsky, it's data that says indications of a wild party, asking as if that's the correct term to use. Riker doesn't react because he knows he's going to find 80 dead people on board. But at the risk of breaking the timeline, because I think you're only up to early season five right now, 
Uh, yes. Yeah. In the first duty, Boothby talks about a wild party that happened after Picard's um, Precy Squares team beat the uh, uh, Minsk or Moscow, whoever, and he had took him three weeks to clean up the grounds. And then you saw uh, Ensign Rowe and Geordie's funeral, hmm. in um, where again they threw a wild party. So no, I think these guys know how to party from time I, to time. I still contend it's nowhere near the Science Lab Christmas party. Oh, nothing could be nowhere near that. Nowhere near that. (laughs) Thank you, gentlemen. You know, along those lines, Ron Moore, again, another interview we did, um, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, you know, very respectful of my father, but made a comment similar, and I'm not throwing him under the bus, to after Gene Roddenberry passed, after we mourned, good, now we can finally get to the good stuff. We can start asking those questions about character. And he's a great character writer, and so he, he definitively felt that they could get into some of the, the good stuff with characters after Gene Roddenberry. And that, that just, just came to mind. Well, see, Please do not send him any hate email. He's, he's very kind, very respectful. Well, but no, but it, that, that's such a good point. It amazes me that it was such a fight to get the episode Family on the air. Because that is an incredible story. And if Star Trek did anything, it always broke the mold. Um, it, it would try to tell stories in different ways and in different contexts. And for somebody to come up with a, a great idea to say, Picard has just been through hell, he's been assimilated by the Borg, let's see how that affects him. I think that is such a remarkable episode that's so beautifully told, and you sort of watch it and go, of course they had to do that episode. But it was a struggle to get it on the air. It was is, a it, is it Star Trek? Is it sci-fi? I mean, it, it is and it isn't, but yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting... Well, but you know what? One of the reasons that we love the show and that we keep coming back to this is not just because there's a story and there's a message. It's because we feel a connection to the characters. Mm-hmm. The, the, the show is nothing without that feeling of connection to the characters. I have a question. Yes, hi. Yes, hi. Um, I'm very pleased to be here, and thank you for your time here. And I'm third generation Star Trek. My grandma was the first. Uh, she was a really high sci-fi person. She loved all uh, Mr. Rottenberry's work. She believed in it, and she had us watching it as kids, my mother and I. And I started watching when I was five years old. And I have a question because it always fascinated me. Uh, the stories, like you said, it's not only sci-fi, but it relates to each and every one of us. Like it was very personal to me because Ahura was a very strong woman and my grandmother was a widow and she was a very strong woman. She had to raise five children by herself. And I looked up to Ahura. I looked up to my grandmother. She's my first hero and my mom with cancer. And so Ahura was like, um, it was like her favorite character, and I loved her, so she was my favorite character, too. And I wanted to know how Mr. Rottenberry, this is for, for Rod, yes, um, how did he uh, come up with the idea of Star Trek? What, wh- how did it all originate? Because I don't know that, because I'm, I'm not that young, I'm almost 50, but I don't know. So I don't know the answer, um, but my father had an amazing uh, life. Um, you know, being a, a bomber pilot in World War II and doing close to 80 missions in Guadalcanal and, and uh, the South Pacific. Um, <clears throat> after that, being a, a pilot, a transcontinental pilot, um, going all over from New York to Johannesburg, uh, surviving a plane crash, uh, actually two crashes, um, and uh, then becoming an officer in the LAPD and writing speeches for the chief of police, but also walking the beat. Uh, those speeches were about um, how 
the, the police should interact with the, the people? Um, is there a way to, to cooperate and work together? Um, he, he had an incredible career and he saw the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. And I think he was definitely inspired by the, the positive things. And so I think it was just a, a, an incredible perspective of our planet and, and the people on it. Um, I don't know for certain, but I, I think that's what made Star Trek. I know there's a, a Chris Kanoff, who was a writer, uh, Have Gun Will Travel, I think, um, was a friend of my father's, and my, he took my father to a baseball game, and my father pitched this idea of a dirigible um, going from place to place with a varied crew solving problems. And so Chris feels that that was sort of the first in, in, incarnation of, of Star Trek. So do I have a solid answer? No, but that's some food for thought. Okay, well, thank you very much, and it's very extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank I think, you. you know, you brought up something really interesting about this idea of family, and that, that was actually a note that I took that I, I thought was so interesting about the progression and the changes within Star Trek, uh, is that we always say that, you know, friends are the family you choose, and it seems that on Star Trek, uh, I, again, half-jokingly, half-seriously, I've said that so many people in the Enterprise are orphans, uh, but they find this deep, connected relationship with their fellow crew members who are their friends, who would do anything for them, who would die for them. Um, and that's something that I think has changed a little bit over time within the shows, and I think in Next Generation, where we are now, um, there's a bit of a magnifying glass put on that. Uh, there was something that we discussed in the episode, The Bonding, where uh, Jeremy Astor, he's the like, 10, 11-year-old kid whose mother dies on an away mission. Father's already gone. Um, so he's alone. And Gene had an issue with the idea that he would be upset by this. Because in the future, things are so good that you have this understanding of the circle of life. You understand that people live and then they die and you're okay with that. Um, and to me, I was, I was kind of horrified by this. I thought, well, of course, this kid is going to be absolutely torn up at the prospect that his mother is gone. But then the more we talked about it, I, I think you had uh, an well, additional thing perspective was, on it. I don't even remember if we came to this in the show or if it's just talking about it again later, but your fascination with orphans um, in Starfleet, but then you have Gene Roddenberry saying, eh, death of a parent wouldn't be that big a deal to a 10 or 11-year-old. I wonder if it's sort of the whole it takes a village thing. I mean, if those 1,000 people are not single people and older people and families, but if it's just, if it's a, if it's a big family. Yeah. I mean, if it is, if it is one uh, cohesive society that's actually raising everyone and elevating everyone as opposed to just, I do my eight hours, I go back in, I, you know, teach my kid whatever, and then the next day I go back out, I do my eight hours, I come back in. We're doing this thing. I mean, it's more of a more of a cohesive society, even though well, it's sort of like an infinite diversity and infinite combination sure, thing because sure. you've got Vulcans, you've got Bolians, who are really only good for cutting hair, but still. <laughs> Which you know, it's a fascinating and beautiful idea to say that we are all responsible for each other and we are all responsible for the next generation coming up after us. You know, but I kind of want to be a fly on the wall in the writers' room when those notes were being given back by Gene. Because I question, well, is it just argument for argument's sake to say, oh, no, no, things are so good in the future that this 11-year-old wouldn't be upset at his mother's death? Are you crazy? That just seems insane to me. I think you can have that moment in the script. I think you can say that, of course, a person will be devastated 
at the loss of another person. We, we see a, a deeper emotional loss in crew members losing other crew members who are friends. Yeah. So there's something very strange and unreal about those moments in that episode with that child. Unless it's part of uh, presenting and believing in an idealism that even if we can't conceive it right now, if we can go ahead and start conceiving in our fantasy, then we can maybe start to conceive it in our reality. That's what bothers me about when you say, now we can finally get to the good character stuff. And I know you didn't say it, but that's what bothers me about that. If we can't even pretend that everything's going to be okay, we're boned. I mean, we're done at that point. If we can't even, if we can't even pretend and they lived happily ever after, we're sunk. Yeah, but see, I don't think that saying that a kid wouldn't feel upset at the loss of his only remaining parent. Imagine a society that that's that is, a better thing. I think that that dips into a weird, like, emotionally argue. manipulative thing. Imagine a society, though, that is so great that a kid could actually absorb that loss, could actually understand that loss, but could deal with that loss because there are 999 other people right outside that door that are ready to take his hand. None of them his mother. I think that's twisted. <laughs> All right. Okay. By the way, there's one other thing really quickly. You just blew my mind because I've always thought, okay, Star Trek, the next generation, obviously this is the next generation of Star Trek, but when you said the next generation, the next generation. is all of next gen about raising up the next generation, not just showing the generation that followed? Oh. Probably not, but you blew my mind, man. Oh, wow. Look at that. Four right. years later, this guy right here, huh? <laughs> here we go. Hi. Um, my question is about... Uh, Listening to your podcast, and you always get to the end where you talk about the messages, it seemed like in the original series there was something specific, like as you say, you see to me moment, and they were all very specific to either racism or Vietnam War or something. And I feel like uh, when you get to the end of a Next Gen episode, they, are, they have a very similar just be kind to each other type of thing. There's not, they're not going into anything more specific. Is that something that you've noticed, uh, basically? Yeah. I no, I I think I have. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, um, so during that period that I talked about of you know Gene doing the lecture circuit, talking to people in the audience, and saying flat out, Star Trek is a series of little morality plays, and and that's kind of the the premise for what they were doing with the original series, and they're all self-contained. And they have, many of them, a you see Timmy moment at the end. Um, which, by the way, somebody asked us where that came from. And yes, Lassie, but lampooned in Airplane. <laughs> so, and yeah. the movie Speechless. It's Speechless. a speechwriter thing. Where they're, yeah. yeah, that was where I got it. Um, but I think that when you get to the next generation where the writers or producers can kind of relax a little bit. They're not having to fight for ratings every week. They're not having to worry if they get renewed every few months. So they can kind of step back and just say, we're going to tell a little more sprawling story. And maybe here we'll focus on a character. And maybe here we'll just focus on an idea to make you stop and think, but not necessarily tell you a moral meaning or message. Uh, we, we talk about the Save the Whales moment. Um, the other day in our panel at the Roddenberry stage, we talked about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which a lot of people still say, oh, it's so cheesy. I said it's too on the nose. Yes, but there's a brilliance in it being too on the nose because that was Star Trek being an advocate saying, here's what you should think as an right. audience. 
you know. It look it seems too obvious, except it really should have seemed that obvious without having to make a TV show about it. Yeah. So I, I think Next Gen has a, a kind of luxury in storytelling that the original series did not. But in the 60s, this was kind of this weird era of TV where it was just a lot of fantasy escapist stuff. You mentioned Lost in Space. Erwin Allen had three other shows on the air at the same time, you know? Um, it, it, there wasn't a lot of room for that kind of social commentary, so, by God, they're going to get it out when they can, you know? We have Andy over here? I think we're going back and forth. Yeah. Okay, got it, got it. Hi, uh, you guys know me, Andy. I've uh, been listening since uh, episode one. Uh, I have a comment, and then either a comment or a question. We'll see where it ends up. So I want to go back to the supplemental that you did uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and talk about something that affected me in that and acknowledge you all for that. You, one of the parts of that supplemental you talked about um, an elitism that sort of forms in the fans and how some fans, my version of Star Trek is the right version, whereas your version is less than. Um, the, the conversation was so fascinating to me and it had me take a look newly at my fandom. I've been... I've been an, a, 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 an original series snob. That's the best, and, you know, uh, that's just the way it is. And you can have your opinion, but it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel the same way. I'm, I, not to interrupt, but I, I'm, I'm, well, I am interrupting. Uh, sure. I'm a next-gen snob because I, I meet people, and they, their Star Trek is Deep Space Nine. And I, mm. and I personally, I scratch my head, and I go, how is that possible? <laughs> no offense. I know, I know, I know, but I'm just, I'm admitting my snobbery. So, That's sorry, my number go, two, ahead. Buddy. go ahead. That's my number two. Save it. Um, <laughs> so, so, what I wanted to thank you for was for bringing that discussion up, because out of it, I realized that my, the way I've been being a fan of Star Trek is in such a non-Star Trek way that I had to re-examine what it is to be a Star Trek fan and the concept of idic. I mean, here I am saying mine is it with infinite diversity, infinite combinations. It's kind of bankrupt. Um, so thank you, because I was able to then go and watch Beyond, the, the movie Beyond, with this new perspective, because it was going to be, oh, this is going to stink. Yeah. It, that's just what it was going to be. And now it's not, and I could enjoy and love it. Uh, and then I could come to this convention and talk to people that they love Deep Space Nine, or they love Voyager, or they love the movies, the new movies. And it's changed my perspective. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, Thank you. Andy, you, you left a great comment on our Facebook page saying that your attitude coming to this convention would be to ask people, tell me about your Star Trek. Yes. And I thought that was great. I thought yeah. it was really cool. Um, True some, Star Trek spirit right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Somebody left a comment on my personal Facebook page after I'd posted a thing about uh, Star Trek Beyond. And I didn't give away any spoilers or anything. It said, here's a link to an article that is about the heart of this movie. And a lot of people commented, and they said, um, yeah, that's cool, or eh, maybe not for me, or I'm not a fan of those movies, or I'll check it out. One person left a really nasty comment that was clearly, clearly there to just say, like, I hate these movies, I don't care to hear about them at all, I'm not going to see them. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, that was, I, I thought of this scenario. It's sort of like you're at a party. And all your friends are at this party. And you're all chatting with each other. You're all having a good time. You may complain about the food. 
You may have different choices of drinks. You may not necessarily be the best of friends with somebody else. But then there's just a drive-by of a guy who walks in and says, your party sucks, and then leaves. <laughs> and I thought, what a horrible thing, because you're all just there to have a good time. Yeah. You know? You can have differences of opinion about certain shows. One may be your cup of tea or not. That's fine. You know, but I, I hate the idea that it's come to the stage of people denigrating the opinions of others rather than embracing the difference of opinion among others. Yeah, and that was something I used to do. Not not harsh. Well, I sure. don't think it was harsh. Maybe it was. Um, but it's not anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm embracing that everybody here, I mean, we're all here for the same reason. They right. may like something different than I like, but we're all here for the same stuff. And how do you do anything other than celebrate that? <laughs> Along the uh, both the party comment and also the in that same uh, in that same Dana Gould podcast, he said, "You know what? If you don't like the new Star Wars movie, and this certainly applies to any Star Trek series or anything else as well, if you don't like the new Star Wars movie, it's okay for you to not like the new Star Wars movie. Don't run around knocking the ice cream out of everybody else's hand. <laughs> right? If you don't like ice cream, that's fine. Don't eat the ice cream, but you don't have to go around and try to ruin the experience. Well, for and have a smart discussion about it. I mean, not smart, but just yeah. just have a." A discussion about it if you if you want to do it instead of just saying I hate it meet someone and say hey you know I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it you know mm -hmm. for these reasons what you're do you also think? free to hate it though I mean I have a friend sure. I have a friend sure. who did not like the 2009 reboot he abhorred into darkness I saw beyond and I honestly thought that he was going to like it and so I told him go see this it's got a Star Trek message it's different actors are owning it in a way that they haven't before go he went and he came back and wrote on Facebook it's a passable movie. It's passable Star Trek. The actors are definitely showing up for it, but it has some flaws. Let's talk about those. So he did two paragraphs of saying, this is not bad, and then he did 12 points of everything that's wrong with it, and then one of his friends said, I was on the fence, but based on this, I know I'm not going to go see it now. And then somebody else oh, wow. commented and said, I've hated these movies from the beginning. Yeah, no way see. I'm giving this a chance. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, feel free to hate it. I don't think you necessarily have to... Oh, you can like it if you want to, <laughs> but it's terrible, and I'll tell you why. Well, that's what I wanted to acknowledge to you guys, because it opened my eyes to, because I would have been that guy that would have yeah. gone and seen it and then said, it was okay, and here's what was wrong, and here's what was wrong, and here's what was wrong. And instead, I, I, I walked out saying, no one's more surprised than me, but I loved it. So thank you for giving me my, uh, my fandom back. Thank you, Andy. Awesome. Sir, hey, John, how are you? Hey, gentlemen. So, <laughs> thank All you Star for Trek Star Trek Matters. Thank you for Mission Log. It's fantastic. Thank um, you, John. And uh, so, you guys have spent the last four years looking at all the and all the episodes up to this point with a very critical eye. Which, even those of us, you know, we're all fans. We've watched the episodes many times, but we're not approaching them in a critical way like you are doing on your show in the very thoughtful way that you do. So, my question that I want to put to each of you, and have each of you respond if you would, is how has your thinking about Star Trek changed from before you did your very first episode, whatever you thought of Star Trek, before you recorded your pilot on the cage, to today? How, how has doing the show changed your opinions? Of I want to be very quick and say that, that uh, these guys are pointing out things that I miss constantly and, and change my perspective of an episode every time. So. These guys are amazing. So that's, that's the only thing I can say. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, I think that my experience doing Mission Log very much parallels my experience with watching Star Trek growing up. 
So when I was, you know, four, five, six years old, and that was just kind of a cool thing that was on TV, and I liked the characters, and I liked the spaceships, and I liked all kinds of science fiction. Um, that's why I'm constantly referencing things on our show, like Space 1999 and Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. That, like, that's what was on, and that's what was cool. The Love Boat. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, Super Train. Super Train, absolutely. Um, and, and then I just kind of fell out of it for a while, and it, it just wasn't something really on my radar. But then I came back to it because I started talking to people who were interested in the ideas of Star Trek. So I got to watch it with a new and critical eye. Um, everything that we do on the show, I enjoy. You know, the highlight of doing this show is actually turning on the computer, turning on the mic, and just having a conversation. Everything that leads up to that is the hard work doing the research, but at a certain point all the notes just go out the window and you have a conversation and you kind of learn from each other. Um, the most interesting stuff to me is hashing out maybe the messages that are not intended in a show. There might be something that's just sort of lingering in the background that a writer maybe didn't recognize, or maybe it was being subversive, who knows, um, to letting a, that lets us mull over something that isn't maybe the UC Timmy moment. Um, so I, I find that constantly there's something new to discover. And here's the thing, we start with the premise that we like Star Trek a lot, you know? So even if it's an episode that somebody writes in and says like, oh, I can't believe you're talking about this terrible thing, I try to push that out of my head. I want to sit down and watch it fresh. And every time I watch something, it's new. That's why we talk about not breaking the timeline. It's not because we're not aware of Star Trek that comes later. It's because we want to stop and savor what's there in front of us at the moment and not try to build up this complicated web of canon and timelines where it's irrelevant to the conversation. Uh, Ken? Um, my perspective has only changed a tiny bit, honestly, because when Rod first came and said, I want you to watch Star Trek and talk about it, I said, so you basically want me to relive my 20s. <laughs> because that's what, I had a roommate, we would sit and we would watch it in reruns, and we would spend one hour watching it and three hours talking about it afterwards. I mean, to the point that we would extrapolate a tiny bit, like we were watching, I remember it was reruns at that point, it was long before Insurrection came out, though, and there was some episode that we were watching and one of us said, you know, one day Picard's going to outgrow Starfleet. Hmm. He's going to have to do something that's going to be against all of it because he's a better character, which kind of goes to the discussion that we're having today about the difference between everything's going to be fine, let's go take care of other people, or let's, you know, look at where it might not be if, we don't, if we're not careful. Um, the other thing, and so I'm actually, what's been most interesting to me is I remember those stories, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, that intrigue and that guy, and he's being crossed by that person and all that stuff. And I'm now finding that I'm missing the simplicity of the morality tale, I think. Not that they're yeah. uber simple, but I'm sort of missing the, I'm missing the see to me. Yeah. I well, but, you know, I, this comes back to the discussion here today. It's that Star Trek is this big umbrella. It, it's not just the original series. It's not just the next gen and, and the series that followed. It's not just the movies. In fact, Star Trek is... Star Trek is this, it's people getting together and wearing costumes, it's comic books, it's parodies of Star Trek. And when you say Star Trek, to the uninitiated, it may just be George Costanza yelling Khan. 
Yeah. You know? But, but that's okay. It, it, it has permeated the pop culture that much. So it, it's a big thing when you say Star Trek because it means so much to so many people. And I've always enjoyed saying to people that Star Trek has survived its own terrible episodes and its own terrible movies, <laughs> you know, that it's okay. It'll keep going. You know, we don't have to worry too much about it. And, and if Gene Roddenberry had high points and low points throughout his career with Star Trek, that's okay too. He got to do what I know I kind of like to do as a producer, and pretty sure you like to do as a producer, and pretty sure you like to do as a producer, which is come up with an idea and then step away from it and let it go have a life of its own. Or, or find people that are far more talented than yourself to, to do it, which is what I did right here. I'm still looking for those people. So, yeah. You know, we, we, I don't know how much time we have. I don't, how long are these panels? We have at least another five I'm willing to go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And We're we go can for continue another the discussion at our booth as well. Four hours. Good. Four good, hours. Good, good, good. Yeah. All right. Cancel the next people. <laughs> is it me? Hey. Hey, guys. Hey, man. Um, how big of a factor do you think the feeling of the first 25 years versus the feeling of the second 25 years is in right around 91 or whatever is when the internet started expanding and when the 24-hour news cycle and we all became very ironic and self-aware and maybe cynical. How, how big of a factor do you think that is in that everything written up until, you know, 1991 or so is written by writers in a pre-internet, pre-24-hour news cycle world? That is a great that question. That is a great question. Yeah. You know what's funny? The, the Enterprise never had Wi-Fi. It's crazy. <laughs> right. It's really weird. Um, I remember watching Enterprise in its first run. I didn't start with the pilot, but I picked up somewhere along like late season two or season three, maybe. And I thought, wow, what a cool, bold idea to do this season-long arc that very specifically tied back to something in current history, 9-11. And then I started reading Star Trek discussion boards. And I thought, how awful to be a writer or producer or director or actor on one of those shows and just a click away from incredibly heated vitriol that has to affect you at some point. You know, I, I talk about how I read everything that comes into Mission Log and, and our listeners are amazing and they are here and thank you. Um, I read emails that are sent directly to us but I usually don't read reviews because even though 99% of them may be positive, um, I, I don't want to be affected by the ones that are sort of the drive-by, you know? And, and I can imagine that for Star Trek fans who are very passionate and for good reason, that they have this tool that, that gives them a very loud voice. I, I can't imagine what that would be like during the production of a show. Good luck to you when Discovery comes on. <laughs> 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 Can't wait to talk that, about clapping, that a year from now. They're clapping at that comment. I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. I, I, and I've told the story a couple of times about being in the audience when I was about 11, 11 or, yeah, probably 11 years old, when Gene Roddenberry was doing one of his college speeches. And the question on everybody's mind was, will Spock come back? It was right after the Wrath of Khan, and nobody knew, and there was no internet for people to spoil it or complain about it uh, or throw out their own theories or, or their own hatred. Now, there, there were places for fans to comment, 
there were certainly zines and, and other ways that people could talk, conventions, um, but it, it felt very different. Don't get us wrong, the, the feedback and criticism... Well, it's good. These, yeah, it's just the, the drive-by, <laughs> yeah. as you say, yeah, yeah. you know? That's a, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been sitting here the whole time trying to figure out how to answer that question, and you're right, you've got the 24-hour news cycle, you've got uh, the internet starting to rise, but you've also got the death of Gene Roddenberry, you've also got the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, there's so many things going on at that point that it's hard for me to pinpoint and say, or hard for me to even think about, oh, well, that had a definite effect because... 91, 92 was actually a pretty amazing time. Yeah. As far as, as far as a number of things going on anyway, so I almost just wanted to say pass, but I figured I should, <laughs> I figured I should say why I wanted to say pass. So pass with caveats. Um, that leads almost directly into my point. So you're, you look at next generation, say the drumhead, and you say it sort of uh, disavows the conceit that we are better in the future, and I wonder if the drumhead and some of those, you know, conspiracy next generation early episodes are more a reflection of that time, which says, we are better. It was the 90s, things were going great, and now vigilance is the price to maintain that. And so while you have this internal character conflict, say, uh, Satie and her rampant paranoia or whatever, the point is not that we are better, we are only better because the majority of us are vigilant in maintaining that better future. So you can have all these character weaknesses and these uh, foibles and whatever you want to call it, but it's the ability of them to overcome. So even uh, Aster, right, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't know how to deal with his grief, so he tries to emulate an android because that's what he thinks is the best way to do it, and they get him to come out of his shell. I mean, presumably, he's all right. He still has that grief, but the point of that better future is that we take our griefs and we take our weaknesses and everything else, and we maintain that better society in spite of them, as opposed to, say, the Klingon Empire, where it's nothing but, uh, you know, honor killings and everything else. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to argue your point. I think I would sort of want to counter it and say it seems to sort of change the endgame. Do you know what I mean? I, I hate to make it sound so simplistic, but again, if we're starting from a premise of and they lived happily ever after and then this thing happened, as opposed to, and the moral of the story is, keep up your guard. That's a different thing, right? I mean, That's you're not, fair. You, don't, you don't come to a place where you're like, ah, we're, we're never going to get there. It seems to be the inherent message that picks up around 91, 92, and then goes on. I mean, yeah, we're going to have fast ships, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to meet people, and we're going to get along with so many people, but we're not going to get along with everybody, including ourselves. So kind of a bummer, but did I tell you about the fast ships? <laughs> that's awesome. So, I mean, I, mean, I, I get what you're saying, and that's, right. that's honestly a... It's a I think that's a very good moral. I think you're right, and, and it's probably more important today than it was even in 91. At the same time, it's... It, it changes the flavor, to me, personally. Oh, that's fair. That's a fair argument. Yeah, I mean, whether we just want to... That's the end point. End game is, we are good, let's go explore, meet new people, yeah. and embrace them, versus, we are good, we have to remain as vigilant long as, to keep as it long that as we're way. careful, right. Yeah, right. and, yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. Yeah, I, I think there's something a little strange about the, this idea of a, a homogenous crew that are all on board with exactly the same principles. Maybe I'm just putting on the producer or writer hat too much, thinking that I want to see some conflict in there, 
but maybe I'm just not thinking beyond interpersonal conflict. But there conflict is a, can happen outside. It can. It can. And I like it, you know, car, which doesn't corporate maneuver and let that be your last battlefield and all of those things that were on our top, what, our top ten, whatever. There's but, a there's a there's a there's a quote that comes to mind, and somebody was kind enough to send in and tell me what it was from. It was from the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. I can't remember the kid's name in that, but he wants to go play speed chess in the park because he's a chess prodigy. And he's got a grandmaster who's actually teaching him how to play chess properly so he can play, you know, against someone else. And Pandolfini is the teacher's name, and he says he can't go play in the park anymore. And the mother says, well, he likes playing in the park. And he says, that just makes my job harder. And she says, well, your job's harder. <laughs> I mean... Once, I mean, once you say, ah, now we can get to the good part, where they're fighting over this thing, okay, that's a much easier story to tell. I'm not saying it's easy, because I can't write short fiction for anything. I'm not saying any of it's easy, but if we've always had this thing of they lived happily ever after, then they found this, and instead we just say, or, or they don't live happily ever after, and now look at all the stories we can tell. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a more difficult well, thing to do, but is it a, I'm not saying it's better or worse, I guess I could ask you, though, is it a higher ideal? Well, it, this is a tricky line to follow. I, I want to see Star Trek... Because I'm going to say at the end of this, there's no real Star Trek after 91. <laughs> I hope that doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> How I guess, dare you? Where has the idic gone? There's your conflict. He went yeah. and sat back there, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the question I would have then is, is it an inspirational problem? So if you're saying they live happily ever after and then this happened, what is better? To, to explore that story or say they lived happier, happily ever after and this is why. And the why part is Picard's ideals, you know, watching Worf cave to Satie and having Picard pull him back into the fold and say, yeah. no, that is not what we are. Yeah. And this is why this is not what we are. Feels I, like a higher ideal than just taking the premise that, yes, everything's perfect and here's a new alien and they... They wear funny hats. Except for the part that if we can, in our fantasy, start from a place and, of, yeah, yeah, it's okay. I mean, yeah. everything's going to be fine. Here, here's what I will say. Um, I was obviously kidding about there's no real Star Trek after 91. <laughs> right, 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 right. It was a couple of episodes ago that I said, I'm actually going to now have to start thinking differently about how I analyze them, because we're, we're moving past that now. We're not going to start with, and they lived happily ever after. We're not going to do that anymore. And, but there's still a tremendous amount of Star Trek out there. There's still a tremendous of stuff to, amount of stuff to learn. So I now have to change my thinking about it so that I can not be that guy who says, well, it was all great before then. You know, I don't want to be that guy. Except for when I'm trying when to offend a whole room guy. of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. My name is Janet McMullen, and I was one of the people who were watching on that very first night for that very first episode. I am now a media professor at the University of North Alabama, and I've been t using Star Trek in my comm theory courses, my ethics courses, wow. my writing courses, and now my Bravo. media and modern mythology Bravo. courses. One of my students' uh, favorite episodes in comm theory, when we talk about the the requirements of communication, is is Darmok. We mm. use. Uh, we use City on the Edge of Forever in media mythology to illustrate the hero's journey. And um, we all know who have studied mythology that myths are the stories of our societies that teach us who we are, why we're here, what's important, and what we need to socialize the next generation to understand and accept. And 
As I think back on the original series episodes, they were dealing with the issues of what it means to be a human being, the very nature and essence of truth and how it, important it is, and while at the same time opening arms to diversity and differences of perspective, there were these undercurrents of absolute acceptance of the nature of the human being and the uniqueness of the human psyche and spirit and the need for understanding what is real and what is true. Now, as we live in a digital age with virtual, virtual reality, and we're talking about uh, cybernetic augmentation of not only human limbs and organs, but the human brain as being not far in the future. Would you address the mythological method, messages of Star Trek for the big questions that my students will be facing in the next 40 or 50 years. Hmm. Go ahead, Ken. <laughs> Rod Roddenberry, everybody. Let's hear it. Bye, guys. <laughs> um, there's uh, a, a friend of mine wrote an article for uh, a journal of Jungian psychology about mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And I was very pleased to offer up whatever I could in the form of an interview to, to talk about some of this. To me, one of the core things that I take away from Star Trek is that there is an acceptance and an embrace of the things that make us imperfect. Um, even though Star Trek is full of morality tales and even though Star Trek explores moral gray areas and ethics in these areas of philosophy. Um, it rarely, I would say never, takes a dogmatic position to say, this is exactly how you should be, and these are the morals by which you should precisely be judged. One of my favorite lines, or moments, in the entirety of Star Trek is Kirk at the end of uh, A Taste of Armageddon, admitting that we are killers, admitting that we are barbarians, but we choose not to be. And as Ken so eloquently put, at the end of The Enemy Within, Kirk literally has to hug out and embrace the part of himself that he hates. And that is a magnificent image to think of for any of the characters throughout Star Trek who have gone through a journey. I would say that the first 25 years of Star Trek is very much following Spock's journey. I think it's Spock's story. Um, he has to go through everything that he went through in the original series. He has to have that breakdown in the conference room in the naked time. Uh, he has to go through Kolinar to try to figure out who he is. And he has to go through the experience with Viger to then get to be the guy who sacrifices himself for his crew. There's so many magnificent moments for Spock embracing exactly who he is. Um, I get choked up every time there's a scene in the motion picture with him laying on the, the sick bay bed, holding Kirk's hand, saying that this simple gesture is beyond Viger's understanding. Because that is so much the humanistic story of Star Trek. 
And that's why Spock is that parallel for every statement that Star Trek is trying to make about who we are. That we have to embrace the things that we don't like about ourselves or don't understand about ourselves. And challenge ourselves. Yeah. I mean, yeah. For sure. I, I, and sorry, I don't know, Ken, no, if no, you no, want to no. say anything. There's, as I started this, this discussion here, you know, my father loved to bring up topics and, and challenge the people around him to think differently. And, and the last 50 years, you know, what our society has been able to overcome on some levels, and in some levels we, we haven't, um, it's, it's really interesting to think about the next 50 years and what might seem ridiculous to us today um, in 50 years will be commonplace. And I, and I love having those, those discussions with myself. So I, 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 I encourage everyone here to let your mind wander and have these crazy thoughts and, and don't criticize yourself for having them. Be open to these, these wild ideas. You don't have to accept them, just have the thoughts, have that discussion. That's, I mean, that's what I love what you guys are saying and that's what Star Trek did for us. Apologies, we, we've been given the we have to go thing, but here's the thing, we are actually over, we're at, our, at the Roddenberry booth, John and I are at the Roddenberry booth for a good bit of uh, the rest of the weekend. We do actually on our website, missionlogpodcast.com, and we, this is a conversation that is ongoing constantly. We have our Facebook page, which is Mission Log Pod, no, Mission, is it? Mission Log Pod. Okay, on Facebook, and we have missionlogpodcast.com, we're on Twitter, at missionlogpod. And we're over in Roddenberry Island um, for the next two days, and we look forward to having everybody come by and uh, and talk to Rod about whatever it was he wanted to talk about a minute ago. Congratulations to John and Ken. Four years. How many episodes? One hundred ninety-eight. One hundred ninety-eight. Thank you guys for Thank supporting Mission Log. <laughs>